I had no idea what it was, so I just, you know, dropped, dropped the JSAO, kind of truck into the, you know, zone, got my FLIR up, and out of the corner of my eye, I'll never forget, out of the corner of my eye, I see this kind of blossom, like, build, like, on the ground, um, and I was immediately thinking, you know, heads up, missile launch, tell my wingman, and he goes, dude, that was your JSAO blowing up. And then I look at my FLIR and I can see all the little bomblets impacting. So what I thought was a missile launch, you know, bloom, it was actually just all my bomblets blowing up. Farley, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to have you on here. Yeah, thanks, Rain. Appreciate it. Happy yeah, to be here. It's good to get some more Navy representation. You know, I've had a few Hornet guys on the podcast, <laughs> uh, so now you're you're adding adding to the mix. But you got some Air Force time. Looks like in your bio. We'll dig into that. We'll dig into Top Gun. You got a book coming out here in November, which again would be fun to talk about that and just the the journey from being a fighter pilot to writing a book. I don't, I don't even know. Yeah. I guess I can't write, I can't write good, so I couldn't do it. So that's why I none of us can. That's the problem. <laughs> it's good to have smart people out there. that can polish this thing up. So we'll talk about that process, but I want to jump into it. Can you just give me a little bit of background of who you are and yeah, how you got to where you're sitting today? Yeah. Um, but that's a long journey, right? I mean, I think everybody in the military has had similar experiences, you know, all come from different backgrounds. Um, I grew up in the Seattle area uh, okay. Went to the Naval Academy, graduated in 1999. Did the whole uh, Navy flight training route. That ended up uh, ended up in Virginia Beach, flying the F-18. Um, flew um, flew the Hornet, uh, active duty in two squadrons. Um, did three deployments on three different carriers, and then uh, ended up an instructor in Kingsville, flying the T-45 Gossok. Wanted to get back to the Hornet, so my last. Uh, I guess it would be 12 years were in VFA 204 in New Orleans as an adversary. And um, part of that time was as a traditional reservist when I went out and got a job flying for the airlines and realized I've got a lot of time on overnight. So let me start writing a book because that's what every fighter pilot wants to do, right? Is write a book. Yeah. So <laughs> things you never thought you'd say. It's funny how that, that path kind of progresses for a lot. Uh, funny story too is I took a cable in New Orleans. I took it during the air oh. show, you know. But <laughs> I think I heard I took, that in one of your episodes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I took the departure in cable, so all the Hornet guys just gave me a lot of grief for that. But again, for a Viper <laughs> guy, it's a it's a significant emotional event. Yeah, taking a cable. it is. Yeah, I've the, taken the long I've taken the long field gear uh, before also, um, and it is it's pretty pretty nerve wracking seeing the end of the runway coming up and you haven't stopped yet. So. I guess it's a different perspective. I'm thinking an approaching arrestment would be absolutely terrible, which there are definitely emergencies. And that one, in fact, had I recognized it earlier, would have driven an approaching arrestment versus the departure and arrestment. But, you know, the jet stopped on the runway, so a win's a win. I'll take it. <laughs> exactly. Any landing you can walk away from, right? Right. Yeah, 100%. Actually, it's interesting. The Navy doesn't have a ton of, like, reserve-type flying billets. Like, the adversary air is kind of it for the most part. Am I right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, there used to be a traditional reserve air wing. So basically an entire air wing that you would find on an aircraft carrier. They had Tomcats. They had, um, they had E2s. They had Hornets. Uh, basically every, everything that you would put on a carrier, they had a reserve air wing. 
that ended up becoming what they now call the tactical support wing. And so there's a growler squadron that augments the active duty growlers doing electronic attack. And then they've got uh, adversary squadrons. Um, there's uh, the one in, in uh, Virginia Beach that uh, flies a Super Hornet, um, VFC-12. Then there's VFC-111 down in Key West um, flying the F-5. And VFC-13 in uh, Fallon. Uh, they're now flying the F-16, which should have come to New Orleans. Just want to put that out there. Uh, and then New Orleans, <laughs> you know, is flying the F-5 now. Flying the Hornet when I was there, but now the F-5. Oh, I didn't realize they transitioned to the F-5. That's... Yeah, pretty much the day after I retired. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm gone. Yeah, F5, I think, would be a fun plane to fly. But then again, I've never flown one, so maybe it's terrifying. But having the leading edge slats versus the T38 with no slats, I think gives you a little bit more maneuverability. Yeah, if you talk to any of the F5 pilots, they'll tell you it's a great plane to fly. Um, I mean, obviously, did a lot of dissimilar with them, uh, did a lot of joint uh, red air events with them. So, you know, I've seen it flying a lot fought it a lot um but i just didn't think that with the amount of time i was able to commit to the squadron that i could do it safely so it was a good time for me to bow out yeah that's the tough part right i had a a commander and i think his thing was like you know at some point you have to hang it up and it's either on your terms or when the military is saying you hang it up for me that was definitely one of the factors i thought about is like if i'm double commuting to my airline job and to my squadron also by the way i'm not that good and the tactics continue to evolve. The <laughs> yeah. technology continues to evolve. It's a full, I mean, it is a, if to be good, it is absolutely a full-time job plus some, yeah. um, unless yeah. you're just a genius, like I guess maybe Elon Musk or a lot of the buddies I flew with, but not for me. You, you got to be in the books. You got to be in the vault. You got to be practicing flying all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you absolutely do. And that was, you know, one of the things that I realized in my last few years in the squadron, uh, you know, I'd done, I'd done the events that, you know, we did red air for so many times that I could just, kind of do it just on habit but i realized that my tactics were really dated you know i went through the course in 2009 and things had changed considerably you know since then so that's why i thought doing dim even been doing demo doing air shows for two years not doing anything tactically jumping back into it the the plane some of the you know the tactics had evolved the plane was starting to evolve with some of the additional sensors and things that were going into it with as far as software um it's a fast it's a fast moving ball game and if you're not always in it there's a huge learning curve uh, i could yeah. imagine like jumping jumping back into it today it definitely would blow my little my little mind so to speak so um not, not yeah, it would be <laughs> yeah uh i want to talk so you did two operational assignments in the hornet talk to me a little bit about what it was like during those assignments for you? Cause if I'm, I mean, it's kind of the heat of Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. depending on where you're hitting the cycle, but talk to me about that. Yeah. So, uh, so my first deployment, I was with VF 87, the golden warriors out of Virginia beach. Um, uh, we, we cruised on the Roosevelt and this was the very beginning of the Iraq war. So we were actually still in our workup. So we're off the coast of Florida. Um, they, they've got several, uh, pre-deployment training exercises that you participate in as an air wing, as a carrier, as a strike group. And we were in the middle of that when we got the call, Hey, we're going to fly, we're going to head straight over the Atlantic into the med and, and start, uh, operation Iraqi freedom. So we didn't even, you know, come home like we were supposed to around Christmas time. We just boom, headed over. And, um, 
So we ended up in the Eastern Med, and uh, this is the very beginning part of the war, you know, when we still didn't know if the Iraqis were going to send up MiGs like they did in Desert Storm. And so we, you know, we flew the first missions with um, both the air-to-air and air-to-ground loadout. Um, the Roosevelt was one of two carriers in the Med that, uh, that supported operations in northern Iraq. So we flew through Turkey and, uh, and then entered Iraq from the north, primarily um, close air support for, for SOF and, and you know, OGA, um, like CIA assets on the ground. And um, I, I can still remember, you know, the, the very first time flying in over Iraq. It was a pretty surreal experience, right? Because um, that was my first deployment. And here I am, we call them Nuggets in the Navy. And I was a Nugget flying on the wing of a very experienced aviator who had, who had flown uh, missions in Afghanistan after 9-11. Um, because, uh, the squadron that I joined, they were on the enterprise when nine 11 happened on their way home and the carrier turned around. So they were some of the first guys to, um, to fly missions into Afghanistan. And so these guys were experienced and, and I'm, I'm new, don't know what to expect and, uh, start to see, you know, AAA, uh, service to air missiles coming up. And, you know, I, it was, it was a pretty surreal experience for me. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, going from that to my next deployment <laughs> was, you know, night and day. Uh, ROE had completely shifted, and you know, we we won the war, mission accomplished, and all that. And so now, uh, you know, we didn't drop bombs on my my second deployment at all. Uh, flew uh, in Iraq from the Gulf, so in the south this time, and then also flew in Afghanistan. Neither one, we we didn't drop any bombs, so it was a completely different experience. As Wild Hunt goes, I want to find the dude or dudette. That has the mission accomplished signed that was on the <laughs> yeah. carrier when Bush yeah. when, when he landed. Like you know, that's got to be in. I I pray, I hope, I have faith that's in some fighter pilot's bar, and their yeah. in their garage or something somewhere. You know, no telling no telling where that thing ended up, but hopefully yeah. not at the bottom of the ocean. Somewhere. It should be in a, it should be in a museum somewhere. It it should. I don't think it's going to make it to a museum somewhere, but um, eh, maybe not. The, so the workup piece, that's something for any fighter squadron that happens prior to deployment. Looks a couple different ways. Obviously, if you're floating around on a big old boat, sounds like you take the big old boat out and, and go do that. What's yeah. a normal workup look like for, you know, because, yeah, you're I guess, operate off the boat and then you're probably using ranges and stuff yeah. that are land-based to go drop ordnance and work with JTACs? So what, what does that kind of look like? Yeah, for the most part. So there's there's several phases, right? So the first phase is, you know, crawl, walk, run mentality, right? So everything you do initially is all unit-level training within your squadron. Uh, and you do what's called the Strike Fighter Advanced Readiness Program. And there's an air-to-ground and an air-to-air piece. Uh, and it, you go from two-ship tactics to four-ship tactics um, in both of those. And um, usually the air-to-air... Um, it can be done locally. So in Virginia Beach, we had an adversary squadron, so we did it there. If you didn't have an adversary squadron that was able to support you, you might travel to Key West. Um, so I got to do that a lot as an adversary, go to Key West. Um, and then air ground is typically uh, done in Fallon just because of the ranges that we have. Um, and most of those don't involve JTACs. You're not doing a whole lot of close air support um, training. Uh, but then you... you, you uh, bring the air wing together in what's called air wing Fallon. So the entire air wing will go to Fallon, Nevada, and and we'll start to do more strike packages. So we're now using electronic attack. We're all we're using um, different um, 
uh, elements that you would see launching from a carrier, but you're just launching from, from ground. Um, and then the next thing, the next phase you do is usually called a comp two X. Um, comp I think it's composite training unit exercise. And that's where the air wing goes on the carrier. And now you're off the coast. So uh, you're either going to be off the coast of, uh, Florida, uh, cause we've got a lot of good bombing ranges there, you know, in Avon park, pine castle, yep. things like that. Uh, or you're going to be uh, off the coast of San Diego and, um, and, and using San Clemente Island as, as the range in that case. You know, the whole air wing will launch, you know, there's different missions. It usually culminates in a, a notional war where there's certain ROE that has to be met. So you're doing a lot of taking off, intercepting and escorting, making sure that they don't get within a certain uh, range of the carrier. Um, you're integrating the, the carrier's um, uh, air defense capabilities as well. So you're starting to work with uh, the cruiser that's the, you know, air defense commander and, and it's just gradually growing and building uh, to the point that now they maybe can say, okay, you're ready to deploy. So, so everything you said, yeah, you know, basically blacked out because I'm hearing all these locations that the Navy gets <laughs> San Diego, Florida, Key West, uh, Virginia Beach, probably even uh, versus a lot of the spots that the Air Force goes. Yeah, but, but then you didn't hear I get Fallon. lost when the fact. <laughs> uh, yeah, Fallon. So Fallon's kind of like, yeah. But uh, the flip side is at some point you have to go float around the ocean for nine months uh, trapped yeah. on a metal container. So trade-offs. Um, when we're talking the carrier strike group, that is run by like a two-star. Is that kind of the normal it, vibe? Bringing usually all a one-star. One-star? Does yeah. he have like the, I mean, are the subs and everything like that? That's part of the whole, yeah. whole package? Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. The, so the admiral that's in charge of the strike, strike group has everything, you know, frigates, cruisers, destroyers, subs. Um, and there's usually you know an, an amphibious you know expeditionary group that's attached to it as well. Um, but they, it, you know, when I, I when I was a kid reading Tom Clancy, you know, I thought that the strike group would go out to sea and you'd be surrounded by all these ships and just be this big package. What I didn't realize is that that the Admiral might tell the destroyer CEO, Hey, you're going to go do this counter piracy, you know, operations. And so they detach and go, you know, hundreds of miles away and they're completely autonomous. I mean, the, one of the things about the Navy is, is that, uh, you know, a ship CEO is the ultimate authority. So he's given a mission and go, go complete the mission. So, um, honestly, when I was at sea, we probably saw, you know, maybe one or two ships at most that were around the carrier the whole time. Now there were the ones that were under the water that I didn't see and had no clue where they were. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty interesting. The strike group is spread out. Yeah. Doing, doing submarine things and other boat things. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, uh, Top Gun. What was, what's that process like getting selected and then talk to me about Top Gun itself. Everyone's seen the movie, I assume. Yeah. So <laughs> every it's if you've seen the movie, I mean that's pretty much it, right? You don't need to know anything just else. <laughs> go out there, overstress every single airframe. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then just you know drink a lot and play volleyball. Um, yeah. No. It, in reality, um, in reality, there's basically a couple ways that you you go to Top Gun. Um, usually, it happens right after your first sea tour. So you have a three year sea tour, um, and if you get selected to be an instructor at one of the weapon schools, either on the East coast or West coast, an instructor on the staff at top gun. Um, and there's a couple other billets, I think for the training squadrons, for the F 18s, they, they have a billet. Um, 
the some of the test squadrons have one as well. Then you would go through the class, and then um, it's changed now uh, how long the class is, but it's about eight weeks long. You go through the class, and then you go to wherever your assignment was. Um, for me, um, I went through as an adversary. So, you know, you, when you go through the class, you either go through as a fighter, uh, an adversary, or a controller. They do. They have controllers. Um, we had like, marine controllers, intercept controllers, E two controllers. Um, shipboard controllers, they go through the, the class as well. Um, so as an adversary, it was kind of nice because I had done my sea tour, done my shore tour, and then had checked in to the adversary squadron and they said, okay, we're sending you to Top Gun. And so, uh, when you, when you finish up as an adversary, cause what you do is as you're going through the course, you as adversary are in charge of all the red air. So. Uh, when I went through the Admiral who was in charge of NSOC, now it's called Nautic, but the, uh, at the time, the Navy Strike and Air Warfare Center in Fallon, the Admiral, uh, was, was one of the guys that was involved in, you know, the only Hornet shoot down, you know, in, in Desert Storm, uh, Admiral Fox, and he was one of the wingmen on one of my sorties. So he, Admiral came in, I gave him the presentation, Admiral, this is your job. You know, he's like, Roger that, you know, and, and, and go out. So. Uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty cool experience. Um, the flying I think was, was top notch. I mean, long days, you'd, you'd wake up early, you'd brief your sortie, uh, you go fly, you come back, you know, long in-depth debriefs, and then you go to the O club and, uh, cause there's really nothing else to do in Fallon, but it was just, you know, over and over, but it was, it was fantastic flying. Um, and then after graduating, you know, go back to the squadron and now, you're an adversary and instructor, so you're you're training the other guys in your squadron on the latest and greatest tactics. And then, you know, you go to Key West and you do a one v one with a Nugget that's getting ready for workups, and you you BFM them, and uh, you're basically just training them in air to air combat. That's funny. Yeah. I've had uh, Admiral Fox on the podcast twice. Been great to talk to him, uh, Tim, and hear like his story. Yeah, for sure. So. You know, for the Air Force, we have our aggressor squadrons. We have weapons school. Weapons school and Top Gun are often compared. I would like to talk uh, about the integration piece, but it's probably more appropriate to talk about the integration piece with, like, our adversary squadron. So we send guys to go be adversary air, mm -hmm. but they become SMEs, subject matter experts. Maybe they're in Russian missiles or Chinese missiles or radar systems, et cetera. And there's going to be one guy that's in charge of knowing about yeah Russian radars, right. so then teach the others. I assume the Navy probably does something comparable to that. Yeah, uh, we do. Um, every year, it's usually around tail hook. They have like a what's called a re red or a re blue, where uh, patch wearers go back to Fallon and they give them an update on what the latest and greatest are on the tactics, both on the red side and on the blue side. Um, and they've tried this before, where within TSW each squadron has a specialty for kind of really what they're, you know, whether they're going to be, you know, uh, Russian or Chinese or whatever. I don't think that's ever really stuck. Um, so usually what happens is within the squadron, you have a person that's going to be a SME on a certain area, but, um, all our events change, the threat changes for every single event and we have to be able to replicate that threat regardless. So, um, what ends up happening is usually most guys are pretty proficient in, in all of them and, 
and you go, if you have a question, you go to the guy that just went through the class most recently and you ask him, Hey, what's the latest on this? You know, what do I need to do? How do I replicate this uh, threat radar or this, uh, this aircraft? And they give you the latest, but it's not quite the same as the air force. I know when I went through the class, I kind of equated, you know, my experience at Top Gun being kind of master's level. And I think the air force weapons school, I would equate that to be more of a, you know, doctorate level. Yeah, obviously, I never went to weapons school. The The traditional flow for, like, a weapons officer, at least in the fighter community, is usually, like, two operational assignments on average. And that's probably a, a fair thing to say. And then each base is probably going to pony up maybe one person every six months, maybe two. Again, it just depends on how many squadrons are there. And then they're going to go spend six months just getting drugged through the mud. Um doesn't doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun yeah what's about the average i mean that squadrons in the navy are sending guys and gals to top gun well you know it's not um like i said because in order to go to top gun you have to have one of those billets it's it's it it used to be top gun was when they called it power projection i think the squadron would send somebody so like the original movie you know the squadron would send somebody and there they would come back to the squadron then and sort of teach what they learn. Now, you when you go through Top Gun, now you go then to a weapons school staff or to the Top Gun staff or to the Nautic staff. And, and so you're kind of spreading out. Now, when you finish those weapons school tours, then you do what's called a training officer tour. So then you go to a squadron. And now you are the SME for tactics for that squadron. Okay. And so it's, it's a little bit different. So every squadron has one training officer. But some squadrons have more than one you know, Top Gun graduate just based on where they are in their career. Because then you go from being a training officer to being a department head, which is a 04 job. Um, and then sometimes you have your XO and CO are also Top Gun graduates. Gotcha. That makes sense. Because I'm thinking of like the first Top Gun movie, which yeah. is comparable to like a weapons school class where you're, hey, you're sent every, you know, base is poning up a couple people and then they go to Las Vegas and they're a class of eight people or nine people. Mm-hmm. But then they have to go back to the operational squadron to be the tactician, to be the instructor that teaches the instructors. They have to do their time, as they say, for a year or two, the patch payback. And then as they progress in their career, they're getting kicked off the staff, coming back as commanders and DOs. So, right. I mean, probably similarly, like any squadron has a few patches, but there's only one squadron weapons officer at the time. And right. He or she is the person that is driving all the tactics in the squadron. The commander and the DO at one point might have been the squadron patch. Yep. But now they're doing commander and DO things. Or yeah, that's pretty similar. Once once you get to your training officer tour, then that's sounds it's the same. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, interesting. The adversary piece is something that some people find a knack for. In the operational squadron, you're often having to fly adversary air and you're supposed to go look at the adversary books and right yeah do some do a threat replication that is realistic not just go hey we're gonna go completely hose my buddy who's on his whatever <laughs> upgrade right yeah there, right which is which is which is usually what ends up happening but uh did you enjoy kind of learning about other nations and the tactics they use and trying to figure out the best way to replicate those you know i, re- I really did i thought it was it was really fascinating and it 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 it, you know, when I was a nugget, right, going through SFARP um, and you said, hey, your threat 
at the time the big you know the base one that we trained to was the mig 29 and then you know the su-27 ended up coming along later and that was the big bad scary one uh, but you really had no idea what else was going on in the world. But as an adversary, you kind of get an idea of what each threat nation is doing and where they're going with their tactics and how they're training their pilots. And um, I thought it was it was a really cool experience to kind of get to see that and then go out and fly it and pretend to be one of those guys and um, and try to give you know try to give the guys who are getting ready to go on deployment. Uh, an authentic experience that they can, you know, use and apply in real world situations. What was some of the challenges of being an aggressor? I'd say the biggest challenge is, is ego, right? I mean, uh, my, if, if I go out and I lose a fight, I should consider that a win, right? Because that means the fighters are ready <laughs> to go defend right. the homeland, defend their carrier. Right. Um, so, so, that the challenge was was not, was kind of leaving my ego at the door, understanding that there are training objectives, and when they've met the training objectives, that that's a good thing. Um, so that's that was probably the biggest challenge. I could see that, like if you're gonna be a mill power only adversary, yeah. And then like if I just put an afterburner, <laughs> right? I can I can get the cues that I need here. Right, exactly. But then you know, it was also nice when you could actually punish them when, you know, you see them make a mistake and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to exploit your errors here. Talk to me about your time in Afghanistan. Cause you did a, a tour or at least a deployment for a bit with the tactical air control party with the air force. Is that? Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. It was right after I graduated top gun, I returned to the squadron. And at the time the, the Navy was not having very, um, very much success going kinetic in Afghanistan. So we had carriers that were operating in the North Arabian Sea that were flying long sorties up into Afghanistan, spending a lot of time on station, working with JTACs, not satisfying the ROE, and then having to return to the ship only to hear an F-16 check on right after and get cleared hot. So some some brainchild on the Navy staff at the Pentagon said, well, it's because the ground force commander doesn't know how to use Navy assets. If we take some Navy TAC air guys and stick them in with the Army, then they can use them. And so there were 10 of us that were picked, and uh, I was the lucky one from from my squadron that got to go. I guess they figured because I just finished Top Gun and, and was very proficient in air-to-air tactics that I'd be the perfect person. But, uh, so, you know, I went through the joint firepower course at Nellis and, um, and then went through the Navy they have called NIACT. It's like the, uh, the individual augmentee combat training. It was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where we got to run around the woods and play army, um, driving Humvees and carrying M4s and, and, and doing that. And, uh, and so we, we went to Fort Jackson, started communicating with the, uh, the Colonel that was in charge of the all the, all the JTACs and TACPs that were in Afghanistan. And he said, well, I don't know how to use you guys because doctrinally there, there isn't something called an air planner, which is what the Navy was calling us air planners. So he said, I'm going to use you as ALOs. You're all tactical. You all have, you know, um, JTAC experience. So we're going to, we're going to use you as, as air liaison officers and send you out with uh, individual TACPs, different FOBs. So that's what we did. We were, cause we're all war fighters. We, whatever we need to do to support the mission, so we go over there and uh, I, I can still remember 
sitting in the talk one day, the ground force commander is talking about an upcoming operation and he's like, air, what do we have available? And I said, well, you've got a B one with two hours of on station time, a couple strike Eagles with, you know, uh, an hour and a half, um, F-16s with an hour, A-10s with an hour, and and two uh, Hornets with 20 minutes. And he goes, well, what do you want to use? And I said, not the Hornets. I mean, I don't want just 20 minutes of on-station time. You know, I want to have something that's that's there and persistent. And so uh, we quickly realized this experiment was not going to work. And and uh, the, the Navy leadership was like, hey, what's going on? How come we're still not seeing, you know, advantages? Like, it doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, the Navy air wing exists in an expeditionary role to basically be there until we have a permanent sustained presence. So does it really make sense to have guys flying from a carrier all the way up into Afghanistan only having 20 minutes? Or maybe should we debt a squadron to Kandahar and uh, have them fly out of there? But, you know, so that 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 experiment failed after that one deployment. But (laughs) it is interesting how it goes. Uh, I've talked about on the podcast, other things, my last point to OIR, you know, the F-22 started getting in the mix and the F-22 was dropping bombs. The Russians showed up and, you know, there's some argument for some air dominance and making sure uh, they don't do anything crazy, but it's also kind of silly in Rain's humble opinion to have this, you know, fifth gen fighter dropping bombs without a targeting pod right. into an uncontested environment. Now, if it's contested and you got double digit SAMs and you needed to break across the fence. Sure. There's a, there's a discussion and an argument for that, but like, let's not use it on like the softball targets. Like we can right. use Vipers and Hornets, et cetera, for that. The on station time is always a factor and that, you know, I think that'll always be something for a Viper. That's an issue for mm-hmm. probably a Hornet coming from the boat. That's an issue. Yeah. F 35 painful as it is, you know, a strike Eagle with just bags of gas and tons of bombs. Yeah. Um, and you yeah, I mean, it, you have there. to, you have to pick the platform for the mission, you know, and I yeah. think there's a lot of infighting that goes on, you know, at least, at least among the flag, you know, general officer level where they want to prove that their assets can do the mission and I don't think maybe they should in all cases. Yeah, if you need to go somewhere in a matter of days and put air power and force project somewhere, like turns out a boat with a bunch of hornets on it, it's probably it's probably your huckleberry. Yeah, you know, it doesn't need it doesn't need a long runway and uh, don't have to go take an airfield. But different different tools in the tool bag for different problem sets depending on what presents itself. Absolutely. And in a landlocked country like Afghanistan, I mean, I think that there an argument could be made that once you have a sustained presence, you know, and you have, you know, fighters and strike aircraft that are based there, you should use those, you know, and if you need more then yeah. debt more there, at least that was my belief. That was my opinion. But, you know, I had a very, very granular view being on the ground and, and seeing, you know, what I was seeing, and knowing that, man, I love the Hornet, and my and honestly, my JTACs, they love the Hornet too. They they said I would much rather. No offense, I would much rather pick a Hornet guy over a F sixteen guy because it sounds like they're just kicked back in recliners, smoking a cigarette, and having a drink when they're talking to you about ROE, and they're just very relaxed. and And I I take great pride in the fact that you know Hornet guys are 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 pretty good at close air support and um and are are pretty relaxed at working with the jtacs on the ground and they they look to accomplish the mission but if it's not the right asset it's not the right asset you might have just cut out there for a second 
I'll have to uh, erase all everything you just said about the the Hornet, so it's fine. Uh, yeah, it's a little blip. I think at the post production it'll, it'll show up, but um, yeah, it's, it's there's different tools. And that's the strengths and weaknesses. There's always the argument that pops up. Yeah, like for instance, like the F thirty five will never replace the A ten. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the A ten is a close air support machine, but the A ten is going to soak up a bunch of dig- double digit SAMs in about the first mm, nanosecond of any like contested fight. So it's just knowing the strengths and weaknesses and using the right tool for the for the right problem yeah the trek into afghanistan from the boat i'm sure it depended on how far away the boat was and the boat's always moving but like like going into iraq going into afghanistan if you're down there in the gulf like that's not a short sortie from just getting into country doing the vol and coming back no yeah it's not at all um it it was different you when we were in the med flying into northern Iraq, it was a long transit to go through Turkey. And usually once you'd get to northern Iraq, that's where the tankers were. So you'd, you'd fly in, you'd hit the tanker to top off, and then you'd have, depending on your cycle, because everything is based on cycles on the carrier and when you have to recover by, uh, you would you would maybe have two or three vols. And so you, you'd hit the tanker, top off, go into... Uh, you know, we called them kill boxes, an area where you check in with the JTAC on the ground and, and work with them to see if they had any 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 work for you. Uh, and then you go back to the tanker, top off, and then back for another vol, and then maybe top off one more time before heading back home. Um, it's a different story when you're in the North Arabian Gulf and you're flying in through the south. I mean, it's usually a little bit shorter transit. You're you're in Iraq almost immediately, so. Um, but Afghanistan was completely different. I mean, there was, you know, long transit times, those missions, you know, routinely were eight hours long, just, you know, the bulk of it is really just transit to and from. Yeah. That, that's, that's always painful to add like an extra hour and a half or yeah. three hour drive to work and then go to work and then drive back for uh, a couple more hours. Yeah. And then have like, to land uh, and then have to land, land on countries. a boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about boat landing stuff because that, again, just sounds absolutely terrifying to me. What are, <laughs> what, are, what, are, what are some of your first experiences landing on the boat like? Well, um, my first, I'll tell you, my very first experience was in the T-45, which, you know, if, if many people don't know this, but when you go to the carrier for the first time, you're by yourself because no instructor is stupid enough to get in your back seat. And uh, <laughs> as an instructor, I can I can honestly say that's true. Um, but so my first, my first time landing on the boat in the T-45 was a debt out of Jacksonville, Florida. And, um, day one of the, of the, of the detachment, I was not flying. So I had a day off. And, um, on that day, my, uh, on-wing instructor. So the person that taught me basically how to fly the T-45 in the very initial stages, the, the familiarization, uh, stages, um, he, he crashed into the water and died. And, um, Jeez. and that was, that was day one. And so that night they had an all officers meeting and, and, and they got everyone together that kind of said, Hey, this is what happened. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's it. We're going back to Kingsville. I mean, I'm not going to go tomorrow. I guess I'll have to come back another time. And then they looked at me and like, Stuart, you ready to go in the morning? And I was like, wait, somebody just died. Like, are we still doing this? But that's, you know, that was kind of my first realization of, you know, a naval aviation, military aviation, it just doesn't stop. It doesn't stop because, you know, someone dies as tragic as it is. And so the next morning, you know, bright and early sun hasn't even come up and, and I was, I was going 
and um, it was me and three other, uh, two other students, and then an instructor who was leading us out there. So it was a four ship. The instructor leads us into the break. Um, he will uh, usually land, and uh, they pump him full of gas, and then we usually do a touch and go the first time. So the first time that you're actually seeing a carrier is a touch and go. And um, so we do the touch and go and then come back around and land. And it, I don't remember any of it. I mean, it was 100% <laughs> muscle memory uh, because you just yeah. practice so much of the field that, that I was com- just completely oblivious to what was happening until I was stopped, chalked and chained on the deck, getting gas, looking around and going, I can't believe that I am in a jet on a boat in the middle of the ocean. It was, it was just the most surreal experience. And honestly, that never really went away. You know, that, that, that feeling kind of of complete and utter shock and amazement just stayed with me my entire career. <laughs> I made it. I made it on the boat. This is, yeah, like <laughs> yeah, a huge win. Your on-wing that was killed, was that landing mishap or spatial disorientation? Yeah, so what it was? What we think happened, and this is what the the incident report, the accident report said, is that he had a, a backseater with him. He was a, I believe, it was an Air Force A ten guy that was just going out for a good deal, right out to the boat, and um, yeah, he, the leg restraint uh, lines. So you have um, straps that are around your up your upper thighs, or right above your knees, um, and then around your ankles that that pull you your legs into the ejection seat if you have to eject. Um, uh, what they think happened is that, uh, the backseaters leg restraint lines, uh, were kind of twisted, um, so that when he entered the break, the stick in the back got caught in those leg restraint lines. And so he basically just broke right into the water. Couldn't, couldn't write the, the jet. They both tried ejecting and, and, but were inverted at that point. And so they, they both just ejected into the water and pretty much killed instantly. Yeah. That that sucks. That's yeah. not the most elegant way I could put that. Um, do you know how many carrier arrested landings you have? Uh, I don't know exactly how many I have. Um, I, lo- I stopped counting after about three hundred, um, but yeah, yeah. I, somewhere somewhere between three and four hundred. Yeah, well, that's fine. I feel like all the Navy guys know how many landings they have, which I like to poke fun at. Like I don't know how many landings I yeah. have. Like I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Took off, I landed. But yeah. I know landing on a boat's a whole different, whole different thing in itself. So yeah. Oh, you uh, know exactly how many you have when you're <laughs> yeah. in a boat squadron. You know that is constantly deploying yeah. because every single landing is something that you have to look at on a board. There's a you know called a greenie board. Every landing's graded, and you and your squadron has a board up. Um, and if you get a good grade, it's green. If you get a bad grade, it's yellow. A really bad grade is brown. Um, and so you can walk into any ready room on the ship and see, you know, oh man, he's having a rough time. He's getting a lot of Browns on there. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, you know how many landings you have and how well or not well you're doing, um, when you're doing it. But my, my last squadron, we went, we were originally, um, a reserve deployable squadron, um, you know, back in 2003, the last Navy Hornet squadron reserve Hornet squadron deployed. That was actually on my deployment. So I, I cruised with a bunch of reservists, uh, VFA 201 when 201, uh, disestablished, um, 204 ended up being the last deployable, 
squadron. So for a while, we we did have to go to the carrier and we did have to requalify. But uh, then they decided that was too expensive. Uh, we're just going to be adversarial only. And so they did away with that. Interesting. Well, I guess would that have been like the Dobbins guys out of Marietta? Atlanta? So that was 203. Um, and they went around, they went away around the same time that 201 did. I can't remember yeah. what year that that's was. That's why I feel, I mean, I, that's obviously where I'm from, but I remember yeah. the Hornets up there at Dobbins probably just, uh, you know, after the, definitely after the Afghanistan kickoff, but maybe be they were gone before Iraq kicked off or right after it. But, uh, cause yeah. that was a, I mean, that was a combat coded Hornet squadron. It wasn't adversary yeah. squadron. Yeah, correct. it was. And I mean, at the at the time, all the VFAs were. So VFA-201, VFA-204, VFA-203. And then you had the VFCs, and those were the ones that were um, historically adversary. When they did away with VFA-201, which also did adversary work, um, then they started um, giving more and more adversary duties to uh, VFC-12, you know, VFA-204, um, v that's around the time that VFC 111 stood up. Originally, they were a, a VFC 13 debt in Key West, and they decided, hey, we just need a permanent presence here. Let's stand up a new squadron. And so that's when VFC 111 uh, stood up. So, yeah, they just uh, they, they did away with, you know, that like I said, that reserve air wing. Um, you're no longer going to have a reserve air wing going on a, on a carrier. Um, and I, I don't foresee a time when we will ever have you know, a reserve TAC air squadron deploying again. Interesting. Cause it's quite opposite in the air force with reserve and guard squadrons, which are almost like active duty squadrons at this point, as yeah. far as like their ops tempo and, and deployments cycles, et cetera. One thing you bring up uh, that I need, it's a point of contention I have with the Navy, which there are few, but the VFA, the VFCs, the CVNs, yeah. uh, all like, I have no idea what any, like, like, like who comes up with this stuff? Because VFA is a strike fighter squadron, right? Yep. Or my. Yep, that's right. What's strike a fighter. VFC? So that was a composite fighter squadron. So traditionally, okay. adversary squadrons had more than one airframe. So they would usually have F-16s, F-5s, um, A-4s. Okay. Um, so if it if you had more than one platform, you should have been a VFC. Well, that's now gone away. So now VFC is strictly adversary. So. Okay, then follow quite so CVN. I see that paint on the side of like carriers. The N is that nuclear? Yes. Yeah. What's the C? What's the V? What? There's a lot of V's. So I don't know what the, where the v, v comes from. V is fixed wing. I don't know why uh, V is fixed wing, but that's what it is. So CV is a is a fixed wing carrier nuclear. So that's what CVN is. Okay. Um, so that's why I'll just chalk it up to that's that's Navy things. Yeah, right there's here. Navy things. Like, I don't understand this logic. <laughs> there's a lot of things that, that I don't understand about the Navy, and it just kind of press the I believe button and move on. Yeah, you probably could say the same thing for Air Force, like the nomenclature with like a KC-135, like K is for tanker. Like a, why is K for right for right? Tanker, I guess T was for trainer, so we had to go with another letter there. Because um, it also pairs into like the Navy listed side of the house. I have no idea. When it's like, hey, you know, I'm boats, Wayne, men, five, petty officer. That I'm like, I don't know what you are. Are you like an E5, an E4? Like, yeah. have you been in the military for 10 years or two years? You look old, so I'm going to assume it's been more maybe 10 years. But um, it's fun to always do that integration. And I think people, too, who aren't in the military, it's good to hear this stuff because yeah. 
we're all doing the same thing and like have the general same objectives going the same way, but there's completely different languages. And when you hear someone who's gone from the army to the air force, the air force, the Navy, et cetera, like it is a whole new set of acronyms that they have to learn and different offices are doing different admin functions. Like it's all kind of the same, but it's all very different in itself. So I yeah, think chuckle oh, when you're yeah, right. absolutely. And that's that's been the coolest thing about my my joint experiences is, is kind of getting to see the way different organizations work. So uh, I did one with the Joint Special Operations Air Detachment, and they said, okay, you're gonna be um, you're gonna be the J three, and it's gonna be like the DO. And I'm like, what's a DO? Uh, and they're like, well, it's, it's kind of <laughs> like, you're kind of like the second command. You're kind of like the operations officer. And I'm like, so kind of like an XO in the Navy. Okay. I can do that. You know? So I, I had to put everything into Navy terms just for me to figure out what my role was. Which I, I will give the Navy this, like, it makes sense. Like the, at least on the officer side ranks, like a commander is typically an, I mean, it's an 05, which is typically leading a, a squadron on the air force. Right. But for us, it's a Lieutenant Colonel. Yeah. And then a captain makes sense in the Navy because you're the captain of the ship and that's usually who's leading the ship. It's like, oh, those, I can understand that. And then, you know, someone just got poked in the eye and jumbled the Ouija board or whatever when they decided to come up with the enlisted side uh, with <laughs> yeah. the ranks. But yeah, uh, it's like, I don't, I don't know what you are. Yeah. It's, it's, it's when you compare that. So, now, for those listening to or watching, you start thinking about all the joint stuff we do. So we think when we talk joint, we're talking U.S. forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, or the combined doing coalition operations. Mm -hmm. Now you're mixing other nations, navies, armies, and air forces in and amongst the U.S. and now having to go out there and speak that common lingo. This is something that I think over the years, it progressively gets better, better for the most part, but it takes a lot of work from smart people who are top gun instructors, weapons officers doing that integration piece to bring all of this together so that when we have a combined objective, we can go out there and fight and win together. Right. Well, did you do any kind of deliberate combined strikes when in your initial deployments there in Iraq or was it Mostly all U.S. That was probably all yeah. U.S. led at that time, I imagine. It was all, yeah, it was all U.S. Um, there were the some Brits. some ad hoc uh, inter interaction or integration with Air Force. We never really planned anything uh, to do with Air Force, but there was one mission I flew on my my first my first deployment. Um, there was the surface to air site that had been targeting coalition aircraft, and they said, "I want you to take it out." And I was carrying the uh, JSAL. Uh, so the joint standoff weapon, which, you know, for those who don't know it, you drop it, it glides uh, a certain distance. And then we'll, depending on the type, we'll either just drive in like a normal bomb or we'll open up bomblets. I was carrying the kind that had bomblets. Um, so it was perfect for taking out a service to air yes. missile site. And it was perfect for not going in to the missile engagement zone either. But they said, we want BDA. So we want you to follow it in. I'm like, uh this is kind of not the point of having a standoff weapon, but okay. <laughs> so um, I was a little bit nervous, a little bit hesitant, and I hear this voice, you know, on the radio, kind of a tinny sound on the radio saying, I'll go with you. And I'm like, I have no idea who that is. I mean, I find out later it was a CJ, right? So it's it's somebody that was going to to protect me from, you know, missiles with harm and, you know, all the other stuff, yeah. that the Gucci stuff they have. But um, I had no idea what it was, so I just... 
you know, drop, drop the JSAO, kind of truck into the you know zone. I've got my FLIR up and out of the corner of my eye, I'll never forget out of the corner of my eye, I see this kind of blossom, like build like on the ground. Um, and I was immediately thinking, you know, heads up missile launch, tell my wingman. And he goes, dude, that was your JSAO blowing up. And then I look at my FLIR and I can see all the little bomblets impacting. So what I thought was a missile launch, you know, bloom, it was actually just all my bomblets blowing up. That's awesome. Talk to me a little bit about the transition getting out of the Navy, retiring, going into the airline world, and then writing a book. What was that like? Well, the, you know, the nice thing is um, I, I always say that being in the reserves was great because it allowed me to keep one foot in. Um, so when I initially left active duty, I did not want to be an airline pilot. I thought it would be boring. So I got another job, um, realized I didn't like working for a living. So I went back to the idea of being a pilot full time. So that's how I ended up uh, being an airline pilot and, um, you know, balancing the two. My squadron liked to have 10 to 12 days a month, usually, um, you know, drill weekend and then, you know, half of a detachment, something like that. But I got to balance the two, right? So if I was frustrated with my civilian job, I'll go fly with the Navy. Uh, if I was frustrated with the Navy, I just stiff arm them and go fly with the civilian job. So that was great. I got a nice transition, a really long transition period uh, where I could do that. Um, my last deployment was with JSOC and, you know, I, I got to see a lot of, uh, really cool things that I don't think a lot of people, um, ever really know about. I mean, and rightfully so, right. That kind of world needs to stay quiet, but what really struck me are the people I worked with and the, and the people, the kinds of people that I thought didn't exist in our military anymore. You know, you start to get jaded. You start to think the greatest generation doesn't exist anymore. And I mean, I can affirmatively state that the greatest generation is the generation that's out there right now. And, uh, it's the people who have, you know, risen the ranks, maybe are more political, um, that are keeping them held back. So I decided I wanted to write a book and I wanted to kind of touch on that. Maybe not the exact experiences I had, but the kinds of people that I worked with. And so I, I wrote, I wrote a book. It took me, I don't know, a good six years probably to write it and, um, didn't, didn't sell it, didn't do anything with it. Um, and then I realized once I finished one, I could write another. And so now I'm an airline pilot and, um, on my overnights, you know, I'd sit in the hotel room and instead of turning on the TV and making myself dumber, I'd just open up my laptop and start writing. And, um, I wrote five novels before I finally found an agent, uh, who believed in me, uh, and signed me. And then, you know, and now, now I'm, now I have deadlines and stuff I have to actually meet. Yeah. <laughs> well, now with ChatGPT, I mean, those deadlines aren't even a factor. You yeah. just, just have it write it for you. Yeah, exactly. Is that not how it works? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, don't tell everyone my secret. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to write one this afternoon. What's, so you got, uh, is Unknown Writer that's coming out November 21st? Yes. yes, Unknown Writer comes out November 21st. Uh, that's my first one. Um, it's kind of timely right now because of what happened with the Marine F-35B, you know, going missing and everyone talking about, you know, yeah. was it hacked or whatnot? I mean, that's essentially what what Unknown Writer is about. And I'm not the first person to write about this. You know, I mean, obviously, um, more accomplished uh, writers like Brad Taylor wrote about it in American Trader. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, who was uh, my strike group commander on one of my deployments, uh, he wrote about it in 2034. Um, 
But what I wanted to really address is, you know, what what is a pilot experiencing when his aircraft is hacked um, and he can't control it? And, and you know, what does that look like from a pilot's perspective? So everything that I write about, um, I try to evoke the emotions that you and I might feel when, you know, we lose control of our airplane and, and, and can't do it. And maybe it's, it's for nefarious purposes. We want to get to the bottom of it. Um, and so I give everyone, I try to give everyone a glimpse into what life is like, uh, as a fighter pilot, but, um, yeah, that's, um, it's, 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 it's not pretty fortuitous that, uh, this F-35 went yeah. missing, you know, last week. Just, yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting to hear or just to think about, cause it's something you've never, I never thought about. There's obviously software in the F-16, there's software in the F-18, a ton of software and code, right? But now as you go to the F-35 and future ones, like you log into the F-35, right? you know, like you got your unique password and stuff. So right. just what a, what a different world and how it's changing. So I can only imagine what the future holds. So interesting. I'll have to check that out. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to read that. And again, that comes out here in a few weeks. Where can people find you? Can they find the book? Etc. Yeah, well, the book should be available uh, anywhere uh, books are sold. So most likely, you know, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, all those kind of places. Uh, my website is jackstewartbooks.com. Uh, and I'll make a plug for that, too. If you get the book and there's a term that you don't, you know, recognize because it's uh, unique to military or to aviation, um, you can go to my website. There is a glossary uh, that I will update for every single book in the series. Um, this is a four book series. The second one will come out in February. Um, and so, yeah, you can, I'll, my glossary of terms is there and, uh, you know, you can, is, C, is CVN and VFA and VFC. I'm gonna there? have to go back and look. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it to, might uh, be, but nah, you're going to update that. Yeah. yeah. Well, now that I'm writing, I'm making, taking notes right now. CVN, VFA. Okay. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> and Navy enlisted ranks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm on, I'm on all the social channels too. So Instagram, Jack Stewart books, um, Twitter, I guess it's called X now is just Jack Stewart book. Yeah. No S cause there's too many letters. Um, it might be charging for that soon. Elon's, you know, he's finding a way he's gonna, yeah. he's gonna charge people. Yeah. For it, so. And I might not be in there anymore. Yeah. So I don't know if I want to pay for this. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm really excited about this book coming out and, and, uh, I've had a few people, few people read it that, uh, that are in the know. Um, I, you know, I, one of my, one of my good friends was the first, you know, F 35 rag CEO. Um, and he read it and he's like, man, I don't know how you got all this information. And I'm like, it's all open source. There's nothing secret in it. Um, and then the, the first person to go through top gun and the F 35 read it as well. So I, I try to make sure that, you know, everyone has a very authentic look at, uh, at what life is like, but, it's definitely uh, not just aviation. There's a lot of espionage uh, in there as well. Uh, and it's kind of how the two worlds collide. I think that makes this, this series unique because that'll exist in all the books. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, chat GPT, it has access to all the databases. Yeah. So, you know, it just pulls yeah, no, exactly. That'll have access to my <laughs> no. book. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, um, Father, I appreciate you hanging around and joining me on the podcast, sharing a little bit of your story, hearing about the book. If you're willing to hang around here for just a little bit, we'll do a There I Was segment. And uh, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.